0: Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Professor Wilfred Riley of Kentucky State. University. Really appreciate him coming on the show today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way my sponsors. Life insurance and long term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals 502 386 0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. We have Professor Wilfred Riley. Uh, Professor Riley is an American political scientist. He is a associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, not originally a Kentuckian, but being that I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky, you are at Kentucky State University. Professor Riley, thanks so much for coming back on the show with me. Yeah, glad to, glad to be here. Um, you specialize in a few topics that don't appear to be going away <laughs> um, and, and the racial uh, uh conversation in our country that is used, whether it's for political uh, reasons or whatever it is, but the the concept of racism and the different approaches to discussing uh, those types of topics are, of course, very fascinating to me. I think, you know, a lot of your writings, your essays and your books, just as a quick summary, I, I, I told you before we started recording, I recently finished reading Hate Crime Hoax, which was a book you released in February of 2019. Then since then, you, you do have a, a, uh, uh, another um, book that, that came out, um, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, which I haven't read yet. But that looks very intriguing to me, Um, somewhat consistent with that type of a conversation also, and you will soon have another uh, uh, book to be released that is Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me. Um, Before we jump into some of the, the, the topics I'm most intrigued with, what can you tell me about your upcoming book release, which is Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me?
1: Um, lies my liberal teacher told me is it's actually my first major press book. It's released with Harper Collins or with one of their interior labels, a bombardier or something like that. But I mean, so it was a bit of a, I love working with Regnery, but this will be a larger print run book and so on down the line. And the basic idea behind the book was we've seen all of these books for decades that kind of critique what used to be the mainstream American take. You know, like Horatio Alger, there were no real racial problems in this country. I mean, this this kind of was said this jingoistic take on fighting the Indians through maybe the fifties, and then you had you know lies my teacher told me and bury my heart at Wounded Knee and all these famous texts saying, well, you know, the USA is to some extent imperfect. You know, this is what actually happened during the Indian Wars and so on. And like I'm, you know, I'm a man of the right, but a lot of that was pretty valid. Like, yeah, slavery is bad. Okay. But no one's really looked at what the people that are in control have been saying for the past 60 years. Because the reality is that for decades, the USA hasn't been an extraordinarily racist country. It's mildly, quote-unquote, taboo to say that. But, I mean, we've had pro-minority affirmative action in place since 1967. Certainly didn't hurt me when I applied to law school, you know. Um, the educational system, like right now, if you look at the social sciences, 18% of professors identify as Marxists or communists. And this has been the case since the social revolution in the 60s and 70s. So the idea that the school system today is run by you know guys in cowboy hats talking about Teddy Roosevelt is, is simply fictional. So what I'm doing is looking at whether the people that have been telling us about the horrors of the past for the most recent 50 years have been any more honest. And what I find is no. Like I do all the good social science stuff. I read a bunch of textbooks, which is not extraordinarily fascinating, but it was something I did for six or seven months. Um, I look at the content of curricula, like the 1619 projects, educational curriculum, so on down the line. And in the end, I say broadly, first of all. We need to critique the people that have actually been running society, at least at the intellectual level, in the recent past as much as we critique those who who came before them. We don't do that a lot. We still pretend it's endlessly 1954. And I also point out eight or ten specific things that most people believe today that are crazy. Slavery was almost unique to the Western world. It was especially brutal here. That's just not true. I mean, the Aztecs ate their slaves. Slavery was something that existed throughout the full sweep of human history. Um, I mean, we go back to Samaria. I had a small research team on the book. And I mean, one of the first human words was slave. Like the Sumerian graphic for mountain warrior and chains was their word for slave. They fought like the great mountain tribes from the Zagros and so on. So the one of the first human words was like guy from the other side that I've captured. And most of this is what you'd call chattel, slavery. People were owned, people were sold, people could be sexually abused. So this went on for the full sweep of history. I mean, in the most civilized parts of Europe, that was serfdom instead. But we in the modern era, in the USA and UK and so on, actually have the distinction of having ended the practice of slavery. That's the primary contribution of these societies to the global marketplace in people. So, I mean, that, that's a chapter of the book. I talk about the Native Americans who I have a great deal of respect for for another chapter. And I point out that they were you know, great warriors and surprisingly, some might say, civilized. But they weren't any more peaceful than anybody else. They weren't damned environmentalists. I mean, they wiped out every large animal in North America when people arrived here from the motherland and across the European land bridges. So I, I try to counter some of the things. Oh, I, I point out in passing that almost everyone who's accused of being a communist during the 1950s was a communist. That's almost a funny chapter because I'm a political scientist. I've read the Venona Cables, they're called. That's the decryption of the communications within Soviet Russia during the 1940s and 1950s. And most of these people like Alger Hiss, um, the Rosenbergs, that became kind of cause celebs on the left that created this whole idea of the Red Scare. These stupid, rubbish congressmen from Wisconsin and Iowa are freaking out about commies. Um, All those people actually turned out to be guilty. Like they had Russian code names. They had Russian handlers. And it, again, it's Venona cables. But if you actually look through them, there are about 500 Americans named and they have very 1950s code names like Capitan and Black Snake and so on down the line. But w- we know who the spies were. We just don't talk about it. So I, I kind of say broadly we need to question what we've been doing recently as well as what we did in the distant past. And I, I call out some of the more obvious lies in the educational curriculum and in so upper middle class social life. And then I give some suggestions about what we should do when it comes to education or even just the conversation. And my suggestion is basically that we notice things and tell the truth. I guess. And I've heard people say that before, but they're mostly people that society has been able, even though many of them are quite intelligent voices, but to consign to the margins. Like Steve Saylor comes to mind. I'm not directly comparing these two guys. Steve's much more quantitative, but Umar Johnson comes to mind. There are people that have said, like, a lot of this stuff that's being said publicly is just bullshit, but there's usually some kind of disqualifier there. And I think I've managed to kind of sneak through the gap where I can say this in the mainstream public square. And. I do, basically. I think the book will do pretty well. It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. But that's that's the new book. It's the first major press book, although hopefully not the last. You know, if it totally bombs, it might be, but I don't, I don't think Well,
0: Very interesting. You, you touched on a lot of very fascinating topics there, and we could take this into so many different directions. In hindsight, was McCarthyism in the 50s, which I guess was technically the second Red Scare. Are you saying maybe McCarthy was unstable? I think he was a drunk. And, you know, of course, when you when when politically you take a stand, people are going to tear you apart. He was viewed as being someone who exaggerated and oftentimes even just lied. But in hindsight, is what you're saying that McCarthy wasn't that far off and, and a lot of what he said was accurate?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's just obviously correct, looking at Venona or looking at a lot of the information we have from that period. I mean... Yeah, basically, McCarthy's individual sort of, you know, AOC or MTG style comments where he'd hold up a sheaf of random papers that might have included, you know, like his grocery list or something like that and say, you know, I have here a list of 170 names of communists. I mean, that was that was BS. But his core written claims that there were perhaps 355 communist agents within the USA and so on, those gel really closely with Venona. I mean again if you look at pretty much everything that Whittaker Chambers said in witness for example if you look at pretty much everything that the British agents were telling us uh, just after World War II I mean that turned out to be true it wasn't the the red scare at all I mean again let me let me look up list of people in the venona cables it should take one second list of all names in venona cables I mean it's it's a remarkable list now some of these people are obviously not actually spies like you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt but I mean like of the people that probably were that have code names and I don't want to libel anyone people might correct some of this if I saying it on a popular podcast but like William Malisoff the owner and manager of United Laboratories Robert G Miner who is our big dog in the office of Strategic Services that precedes uh, the CIA in Belgrade uh Frank Oppenheimer so, I mean, there were members of the Oppenheimer family who were allegedly communist spies. They're not proven, but this is touched on in the movie Oppenheimer. You know, so on down the line. Um, obviously, Rosenberg. yeah, Alger Hiss, lawyer involved in the establishment of the United Nations. Recall that he was a State Department and U.N. official. Uh, David Greenglass, a master machinist at Los Alamos, who was eventually sentenced to 15 years for his role in the Rosenberg ring. Harry Gold. I mean, so these are these are pretty well known people, and they actually, just were communist spies. I mean, so that the idea that we were in a near existential conflict with this other nuclear power—I mean, Red Russia—and they were sending men into our country to try to find secrets. I mean, that was that was one hundred percent true. I mean, that, that's the basis of every James Bond movie and so forth, but also of many are real world texts. So to hear people say now, well, this was this sort of scare—they were looking for communists under the furniture. No, like the communists were there. I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing is done uh, 10 or 15 years down the road with our wars with the Arabs. I mean, so 9-11 and then the Patriot Act, like, could easily be presented as kind of frantic Islamophobia. Not 9-11 itself, but the reaction to it. The simple reality is, I mean, there have been, if you talk to anyone who's in the intelligence business, I mean, there have been dozens of terror plots thwarted since 9-11. I mean, 9-11 itself followed a previous attack on the World Trade Center with explosives. So you can overreact in a military conflict or in kind of a cloak and dagger duel of the spies, but that doesn't mean that the enemy that you had there, that you were on record as having, didn't exist. So that's an important point.
0: My wife is from Cuba, and we watched a few years ago, we watched a special about McCarthyism and the, the Red Scare, and she of course, coming from Cuba, she said, I bet he wasn't actually completely lying just without knowing a whole lot about it. It just made sense to her that, okay, she's familiar with the educational system here. She was educated in Cuba. It, the, it just kind of added up. So, I mean, from from a, 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 a cursory glance from someone who has experienced it, it makes sense for McCarthy to at least have a lot of truth to what he said. But the conventional wisdom Which I think so important as to why you're addressing it in your book, the conventional wisdom says he was a quack. None of it was all bullshit. That's basically what what the the educated person in the United States in 2023 says in hindsight about McCarthyism, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the perception is supposed to be that he was like the Badger State bullshit basher, like he was this crazy drunken guy from the sticks. But no, I mean there were there were multiple U.S. government agencies that were assigned this task of kind of rooting out the commies. I mean, you also had the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC. I mean, you had formal lists of suspected communist spies that were compiled by the government, and a ton of those people did turn out to, in fact, be communist spies. I mean, there's no other there's no other way to put that. So yeah, I I think that that's why that's one of the things that I decided to focus on as needing kind of a little more rediscovery, needing a little more reanalysis. And again, one of the reasons that we think that the Red Scare was just bullshit, one, and that, two, we don't tend to think of communism in the same breath as fascism or Nazism, the Hitler rights, so on, is that a lot of members of the U.S. academic intelligentsia have been communists over the years. So, I mean, I I talk about this in the book, like the New York Times tradition of reporting almost warmly on Russia, going back to Walter Durante and his kind of fake Pulitzer Prize where my man was over there ignoring famines and so on. You know, one of my former girlfriends is Ukrainian and then in the Holodomor, the, the Ruskies slaughtered starved eight nine million ukrainians the number could be off by a little but all this is an actual part of history and we don't teach about communism anywhere out of DeSantis's florida as we actually should because there's often been a lot of warmth to the communists from our our intellectual clade that's where that term pinkos comes from right like someone's not necessarily a full-on red communist But they're a little pink. They're a little little supportive. They're sympathetic. Like, you know, their union might be giving some money to some dubious causes, that kind of thing. That was common in the past and from the little investigative reporting I did for the book that's common today. So, yeah, it's something to keep in mind. And by the way, this is true for a lot of the topics that I touch on in the book. I mean, where you have kind of these contested or disputed situations or you just have a situation where the conservatives were correct. But that picture has never been allowed to come down to the modern era. So in another chapter, I talk about the idea of white flight, which is, in the way it's presented, it's just sort of like these racist Caucasians for no reason left the cities in the 1960s and 70s. You know, one black dentist would move into a neighborhood and all the Jewish and Irish kids would move out. Their parents would move out. That's not really what happened. I mean, if you open up a site like Disaster Center, which keeps easy, monitorable track of the national crime rate, between 1963 and 1993, crime increased 500% in American cities and it increased 800% among black people. And this led to a mass exodus of middle-class people, white and black alike, from the cities. Um, And this was exacerbated by other things that are falsely presented, like direct integration busing, for example where cities like Boston would almost take this purely blank slate approach to trying to get kids to go to school together. So you take Southie, South Boston, which is a white ghetto, and you'd integrate it with Roxbury, which is a black ghetto. And in the first year this is done, you have a 100 fights that lead to hospitalization. And p- parents start moving their kids. It's true for whites and blacks. So you see the school system shrink to half their former population, a quarter of that for Caucasians. And no one's supposed to discuss why. So you have these broad sweeping terms like cowardly flight that are used that don't at all reflect reality. I mean, the reality is that from the 1960s to today, education in almost every big city collapsed. You know, 80% of the white kids left. The top 50% of the black kids left. The population of the schools is down unless you have a Hispanic influx, which is saving some of them. Solid, hardworking immigrant kids. But I mean, for most of them, the population's down by more than half kids there aren't left aren't the best academically. So you have these systems like Baltimore where you see like three percent of the people read a grade level and so on. So that that's an enormous disaster that was caused by the toleration of crime in the 1960s, that was caused in part by mandatory integration busing, that you can't just dismiss as, well, whites are stupid racists. That that's kind of become the narrative. But I mean if if your school is known for having the most racial fights in the country, it, it's not a place you're probably going to send your kid. So a realistic in-depth analysis of all of these sort of multivariate trends is very important.
0: And the recurring theme appears to be honesty. Let's look at this this information that is presented in our educational system frequently, but let's take a look and possibly a critical look at the way it is presented. Is it accurate um, or is there possibly a bias that goes into it? So I think that's a great uh, uh, topic. Thus far in your career, Professor Riley, your book, Hate Crime Hoax, I'm guessing, has been your kind of most successful uh, uh, published writing thus far. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I Well, my book, Taboo, did very well also. I mean, okay. they were both, frankly, best-selling books, at least in that Amazon sense. Like, I'm not a religious enough man to really spend a lot of time on false modesty. You know, they, they did solidly. And I mean, there's a lot there going from like you might authors might not make as much money as you might think to like how the speed the rubber check-in quote unquote, speaking circuit works. So on that you could get into there. But uh, I think of the two, hate crime hoax was a bit more successful. And I think that's because although I think taboo is a better book, hate crime hoax is a better overall work of social science in that I became interested in this phenomenon. Because, and this is something that drew me to three or four different things that I look at, but because there was this obvious contrast between kind of what was going on in society and what was said in the academic press. So hate crime hoaxes were something that I actually became interested in. I think we talked about this in the last show. Years ago in Chicago, when you had a series of these incidents, um, like a University of Chicago student. Let's call him Derek. I don't feel like busting out the young man's last name. Looks like he got a job and all this. But uh, this guy claimed that an entire hacker group, the U Chicago Electronic Army, had been sending him messages threatening to anally sodomize him, kill him. This made the Tribune, this made the Journal. Um, there was another case where Velvet Rope Ultra Lounge, this kind of hipster bar in one of our inner suburbs, was burnt to the ground and these terrible anti-gay slurs were spray painted throughout the place. There was another case at Michigan Tech, a good engineering school not far away, where a white student was accused of threatening to shoot everyone on the campus. And so most people in the Chicago grad student community certainly were following these cases. And what turned out to be the case was that they were all just complete BS. Um, The Derek kid. Was I mean, I guess he just had two computers or two routers or something. He was just sending messages to himself. And he set up a couple of Facebook accounts or something like that. And the feds were able to find that out pretty easily. The Velvet Rope Ultra Lounge case turned out to be a situation where the owner of the club burnt his old business down to get insurance money. You know, and you could make some jokes like owing money to people in the nightlife business in Chicago is pretty risky. Like, you gotta got to pay those debts. So he went out and uh, set the business on fire. This wasn't found out until years later in a separate DUI trial. But, I mean, I was reading the papers when it was found out. The Michigan Tech kid turned out to have actually said during a period when white and black fraternities were fighting or something, I'm going to shoot every other student, especially a black man, I see on campus tomorrow a smile in the sense that, like, we're all engineers. We shouldn't be out here brawling. It was a totally non-threatening post. It was clipped by a campus rival of his and screenshot. This is on Twitter or Yik Yak to make the guy look like a hate criminal. And so, again, feds got involved and it took months for him to clear his name. They had to dig up the original posts on the app and all of this. But, I mean, it struck me that, like, bang, 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 there were three of these cases in about a year and a half and they were just all fakes. So I was curious about how often that happens. And reading the academic journal articles like Barry Levin, who I have a great deal of respect for as a scholar, good guy. But they were all using this very narrow methodology where the the sort of definition of a hate hoax was, you know, a case that's formally reported to the police and then formally reported by the police to the FBI, which can take a year, as a hoax, where the the person that claims they were the victim of the attack doesn't later come forward and say they staged it basically like it's it's that precise or nearly so and what i did was expand the definition a little bit and look for cases that were nationally reported as incidents of hate with at least one major media story talking about this incident of hate like the university of missouri alleged racial fighting all these nooses that were being found on college campuses and in nascar garages all this stuff um, where that, that claim collapsed, where it turned out that for any reason someone did this to themselves, sure, but also it was a prank. Also, it never happened. The story collapsed and where that was reported. So I had a four part matrix. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. But by using that standard, I found that within about a five year period, there were 409 in the original book of these, these hate hoaxes or hate narrative collapses. You could say this has been debated as I understand some small conferences, but like, I mean, most of the most famous claims of alleged racial hate, Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Yasmin Saweet, and two out of these three are just open like police reported crimes. But I mean, like, but going on, I mean, like Duke Lacrosse, you know, Goucher College, Wisconsin Parkside with the list of death threats to all the black students and the nooses. Kansas state with the epithets written on vehicles. I used to have a prepared pat speech where I'd read 20 of these, but I'm I'm doing pretty well off the head, you know, but like all of them turned out to be fakes. And so you get into the question of why does this happen so much to the point where like, if you look at a very prominent case of this, if you look at bubble wallace, or you look at a, what Carly Russell a couple days ago, like a white guy probably motivated by racism, snatched me off the road, threatened to rape me, took pictures of me. The odds that that's going to turn out to be fake are really high. I mean, above 50% for some subsets of cases. So I, I think it was pretty enterprising to dig that out. And then you get into the question of why is this happening, which is fascinating and I think gets into the power we give victimization and so on. So that was that was that book.
0: Very fascinating topic, um, certainly relevant in 2023 once again, as it doesn't seem that the the idea of utilizing racial tension for the sake of political power, it doesn't seem like that's going away. (laughs) So you you writing these books and you being familiar with the the, the reality of it, because uh, someone tuning in who's not familiar with you, Professor Riley, they could say, Professor Riley, he's Pandering to uh, you know alt right white guys, or he's trying to be the next Larry Elder, or you know he's trying to be uh, whatever pejorative you want to use for it. But I, I have a feeling, getting to know you um, through our, our episodes, but also uh, following you, of course, on online, reading your book, reading your essays, that that is not actually your motive. <laughs> your motive is instead to bring the truth to a lot of these situations. And do, does racism exist? Is there some r- white guy out in the mountains who hates African-Americans? Probably, hopefully not many of them, but yeah, it seems like there definitely okay. is. Um, but I do think it's it, your, your focus, and correct me if I'm wrong, to instead look at it from a truthful lens instead of a, hey guys, let's not allow this to just manipulate everyone and use your emotion against you. Instead, let's try to take a realistic look at what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, so something I mentioned earlier and that I I heard a lot of the uh, kind of edgier thinkers I mentioned earlier before, by the way, say is just sort of noticing things like my goal is describing things that I see as a researcher. And I, I think I use more advanced quantitative models when you look, talk about multivariate linear and logistic regression and so on. than a lot of people in social science in general and certainly than a lot of people who are Uh, kind of on that intellectual dark web right. But I mean, it's just sort of testing out things that I notice to see whether they are true or testing out things that I perceive to see whether they are true. And again, that idea is not original to me, but I think very very often there are obvious trends in society that smart, ordinary people, and this idea goes back to Tom Soule, it goes back to Charles Murray, So beyond even kind of the edgy stuff, like this is something that most well-known heterodox writers have said. Like there are things within society that seem inherently obvious to most people. Charles Murray has a great one page on this in Losing Ground where he says, like, if you go to a bar or country club lounge, and this could be blacks, whites, Jewish Americans at this time, those are probably a little separated in those, those two venues. But you'd hear people say things that seem pretty obvious, like, you know, you could stop most crime by just locking up the criminals. Or, you know, most people aren't extraordinarily good. So if you give as much in welfare in a state like Michigan at the time as you pay at a $12 an hour job, as a hardworking mechanic, a lot of people are going to choose to sit on an ass and not work. I mean, so these claims strike most people as incredibly obvious. They are because of the ideological slant, and because of how crude they might sound. They're very frowned on in academia. And one of my interests is in testing them. And I find out kind of getting to the point here, finally that they almost invariably are true. I mean, like, like most political scientists, I'm keeping an eye on the example of El Salvador, used to be the most violent country in the world. By the way, the most violent countries in the world have almost always been Caucasian, Hispanic countries. They're not black Africa. They're not Eastern Europe. It's not anything you'd expect. It's just, it's that cocaine strip there, like Guatemala, El Sal, Nicaragua, some of the islands that touch on that, Jamaica, the Dominican. Um, I guess one of those is a black country. But the president of El Salvador, Bukele, just got tired of that and essentially locked up the most violent 1% of young males. And crime dropped 90%. It's now the safest country in Latin America. I mean, as I understand, murders went from a peak of 100 per 100,000 people per year to like six per 100,000. So like I'm watching this and I'm you know analogizing that to depolicing in the USA, but the results are exactly what you'd expect without all this sort of frenetic bullshit about lead pipes and root causes and so on. If you lock up young fatherless men, you'll have less crime. Um, another thing that I did, I really have to do this as a full-on academic paper sometimes, so I can cite it. But I mean, in in terms of that like private classroom sessions level of survey, a few hundred copies. Um, I assumed the idea of white privilege was pretty much bung home. Like there'd be a bunch of things that would predict how easy a life you've had. Um, for example, having two parents, uh, growing up in an urban as versus hard scrabble rural area. Like farm kids work hard, being you know male instead of female. So using a 100-point scale, I actually put together these scores for a group of several hundred people and ran them through a regression model to see what predicts how uh, privileged you are, how easy your life was. And the number one thing is just social class. Like, I mean, about 70% of how privileged your life has been, how easy your life has been in terms of things like didn't have to work a hard job in high school, had an unpaid internship and was able to enjoy that, never been in a fight. 60 to 70% of the predictor there is just how much money your dad and mom made. I mean, so again, it's just a perfectly practical assumption, like, yeah, sure, there's some racism, but poor white kids don't have it easy either. Let's see which has a bigger effect, and I'm betting it's class, and it was it was class. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a lo- doing some long talking here, but just basically, one of the themes of not even just my research, but my writing is looking at social phenomena and seeing what the most obvious cause would be and seeing whether the most obvious cause is being discussed in social science, and it almost never is. I mean, like, the most obvious cause of black-white test score differences, if you set aside, like, pure racial hereditarianism, would be, like, their cultural differences in study time. In fact, if you look at that, you find that's, like, 95% predictive. But the ideas that we're supposed to say, well, it's really racism. But, I mean, I, I like looking at what the most likely cause is and testing whether the most likely cause is the cause and then publishing those results. And fortunately, I've been... I haven't been attacked on my platform. I I think maybe it's because I am obviously pretty, like, I'm a hip-hop, 40-year-old max black dude, albeit light-skinned. So when you're like, it's hard to call you an alt-right Nazi. I don't think anyone I've mentioned in this conversation, by the way, is an alt-right Nazi. I mean, when I bring up Murray and some of his inspirations. But it's it's harder to accuse me of that. Like, you just want to kill all the black people. Like, no, I don't. Like, what are you talking about? I'm a fairly well-liked teacher at a black school. So...
0: But you are not even as harsh as someone like Larry Elder. He gets, of course, more criticism than you for for obvious reasons. He says some clearly, you know, insightful things for the sake of saying that. I'm not saying they're always wrong or or that they're wrong. But I would say you present yourself in a way that's not as combative. You, You acknowledge some of the, you have acknowledged, I've heard you acknowledge some of Trump's rhetoric through his campaign prior to him being elected president. Was, I don't know if you used the term, but maybe a dog whistle or in some way trying to, and that brings in the sailor you mentioned earlier, um, but that type of an approach to where he is looking for support specifically from white people. Is it him saying, let's all be racist together? Maybe not, but he's kind of subtly trying to sneak that in there. So you were at least critical of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there there are a couple
1: of different things there. I mean, I would distinguish uh, Larry Elder and Steve Saylor, actually. Neither one of these guys needs me to defend him, you know, but from Donald Trump's political campaign, like – There there is a lot of bluster, like proud boys, baby, stand by and stand. I mean, like you can argue about what his when the loot starts to shoot and starts. You can argue that he didn't mean by those things what they obviously sound like. But Trump strike me as a bombastic politician. I don't think he's particularly racist personally, but who is appealing to a working class, mostly Caucasian base to get votes. Uh, I'm not even that bad at the big guy. I mean, like Barack Obama's done that, too. You know, if I had a son, he would look like or be like he's used both in different speeches. Trayvon Martin. No, he wouldn't. There's no chance at all. Your Barack Obama's son would be walking around at 2 a.m. in a hoodie shades on, I believe, like high. No, I mean, but it's so it's it's that appeal to a black audience. Does Trump do that? Yes, of course he does. Um, And I would bet Mitt Romney talks differently in a Mormon high temple than he does in day to day life running his bank, you know, but I mean, in terms of the Larry Elder thing, Steve Saylor, for that matter, Larry Elder is a combative guy. He's a talk show host. I've never heard Larry Elder say anything that's wildly off the, like, Larry Elder's a pretty confident black man. He still lives in South Central. So there's a difference between, like, okay, this guy can be a little bombastic on the air, and this guy dislikes black people. I do think there are some black conservatives that don't much like black people, by the way. Like, it is kind of suspicious that the only thing you ever talk about is not libertarian economics or, like, I'll talk on Facebook when feminist friends ask me about my views on dating and so on. So, I mean, like, if the only thing you ever say is black people, low IQ, I mean, that that is a little suspicious. Uh, Steve Saylor, I think, strikes me as kind of a stats nerd. The funny thing about Steve Saylor, and obviously because he's been completely blacklisted in the mainstream, I and mean, he does some writing for outlets like v Dare, that, frankly, in terms of at the outlet level, I disapprove of. I mean, like, yeah, I'm a black guy, so I'm not going to endorse, like, American Renaissance. I debated the founder once. But in terms of the things Steve himself has said, it's kind of a weird situation Because they're all completely mundane and non-controversial at the level of the statistics, at least. Like right now, his research project is looking at how murders, but also car wreck deaths have tracked up uh, following George Floyd's killing. And like if it weren't that guy, like this would be publishable in a mid to high level journal. I've read through the graphics. You know, I think that so you get into a weird situation there with him and with that whole space of people like Bo Weingard might be at this level where a lot of people that are very influential see these claims. Like these, these are people that have 100,000 Twitter followers, published several books, but where the person who made the claim is almost unsightable. So it's it, there's a bit of a wink nod to it. Like I don't, I don't know if people view him as a mild personal bigot or something, but I, I don't know anyone who thinks Steve Saylor is a Nazi. I also don't know anyone in academia who would cite Steve Saylor in a research paper. Mm. So that, that's kind of a weird zone there. Um, So two different positions for both of those guys, Elder and Sailor. For me, I guess, again, because it's so hard to call me alt-right, I just don't get that a lot, and people tend to engage with my data a bit more. And I guess why is it harder to call me alt-right than uh, Elder? Because I'm a couple of decades younger and sort of an urban guy. Like Louisville area is the smallest place I've ever lived. Frankfurt now is actually the smallest place I've ever lived. Um, And I mean, it's the capital city of a state. If you read through my comments on dating, I'm not particularly prudish or frightened by at least the earlier waves of feminism. I mean, I'm a former activist. I was an Occupy uh, fighter, basically. I mean, though I didn't engage the police particularly much. But I mean, so I, I think people, once they realize that, just have to kind of say, well, is this true? And they would also have to do that with Sailor or indeed Elder, but the way they, they handle that is just by not engaging with those guys at all. Or in Elder's case, just like screaming, you know, you're a raccoon, and then like hanging up the phone. I mean, I've never seen anyone counter something like Larry Elder's argument that a minimum wage hurts the black community empirically. Now, there are counters to it that I've heard at political and economic conference events but, I mean, I, I've never heard a black left-leaning politician just say, well, no, the problem is that Elder misunderstands that corporations could easily take funds from executive bonuses and give them to poor workers. It's just always like, nah, he's a coon. Um, yeah, not, not really much of a point here, but,
0: yeah. Professor Riley, um, we're recording the episode today, July 24th, 2023. In recent news... The topic that I would consider you to be an expertise, an expert on, (laughs) raise the roof there. Your area of expertise would be involved with affirmative action in the United States. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. It says in 1961, in 1961, there was a, a piece of legislation passed, an executive order issued by President Kennedy. And based on my understanding, which is minimal, we have had different degrees of affirmative action in this country, which, at least looking at the Wikipedia, it looks like it progressively got to where it accepted more and more people uh, to try to help uh, minorities and underprivileged groups in the country to get into schools and different things like that, until it came to an end recently. At least that's how it's presented. Professor Riley, if you could please give uh, uh, myself and the listeners a, a summary what is affirmative action in the United States? How has it worked sure. over the years? And then what is the most recent news? What is the true story of what has happened?
1: Well, affirmative, so there are a couple different questions there. I mean, affirmative action can mean two things. One, it can mean taking any positive action to help disadvantaged people, which I tend to support if you look at some of the things that India does, for example. Um, and the second, which is what in practice the term means in the modern upper middle class USA is the practice of giving benefits or bonuses based on race to members of preferred groups. Uh, I actually would date affirmative action a little after the date you mentioned. I didn't really know about that 61 edict. I usually date it to 1967 with the Philadelphia plan when uh, Mr. Nixon actually ordered that the construction industry employ like a certain number of whites, a certain number of blacks, Hispanics were coming into the market. I mean, so that that's what we tend to think of as classic affirmative action. And it's worth it's worth thinking about how long it's been since we had real racism. Again, I don't mean some white guy or some black guy getting his ass kicked, but I mean, like, since in a major industry like construction, there wasn't a structural advantage for people of color. I mean, so if you go to 1967, which is six years after your figure, I mean, good Lord, what is that, 33 plus 23, I mean, 56 years ago? Two or three generations? So, I mean, we've had this in place for quite a while, and it, it is pretty substantial. I mean, uh Espenshad, former academic executive, wrote a famous book, The Shape of the River, I believe was his text, about twenty years ago where he looked at the size of the affirmative action bonuses that were given to blacks. You can just calculate based on percentage rate of admission at each kind of decile of student. But in the Ivy League and, as I recall, also the Patriot League and the Big Ten, just a couple of elite collegiate conferences, and he put the black edge at 345 points and the Hispanic edge at, like, 200. So, I mean, and I believe this. I've worked in academia myself, and I've had a few what you could call boss roles. And, I mean, just think about how that works in practice. Like, if you're a black guy with a 1250 applying to Harvard, you have about the same chance of getting in as a white guy with a 1550 maybe a little higher. I believe that, you know, I mean, it's not like it's a terrible score. It's just there. there's a big edge there. A Hispanic, I mean, you'd have to have a 1350 to match the 1550. I mean, so those those kind of policies have been in place for um some time. And there, there actually has been some I actually teach this in my con law class. So I suppose I would be an expert in the legal sense. But you there have been different er, eras of affirmative action. The case that really was the definer for the modern era is uh, the Bakke case, which I believe was 1978. Regents of the University of California v. Bakke. Alan Bakke was a guy who wanted to be a doctor, as I recall, a gynecologist, and he applied to UCAL. And at this time, the UCAL, the UC Davis in particular medical school, which is a pretty good medical school, had a policy of setting aside, I believe, 20% of their seats specifically for blacks and Hispanics. And so Baki got rejected, and it was one of those things where the letter was was kind of like, you're almost good enough. He wasn't super mad until he looked at the scores, which at this time were publicly available for that black and Hispanic cadre and realized that he beat everyone in that group except two guys. So there's this there's the realization when you're looking at things like this 345-point edge that you're not giving a slight hand up, that there's a massive difference. You're basically getting two student populations. So Baki sued, and he claimed this was a denial of the 14th Amendment right of equal protection under the laws and a couple of more technical things. And what the court said was that Baki was correct. You, you can't just have what are called hard quotas. You can't just say, we're going to admit 10% blacks here no matter what. But the court also, this is one of those very split 5 4, 6 3 kind of decisions, 5 4, actually. Um, the court also says that affirmative action itself is not illegal because you there is a social duty that meets a standard called strict scrutiny, which just means it's very important to pursue diversity. So universities can try to meet this goal of diversity by considering race as one of many factors. And since then, through uh, Grutter, Bollinger, so on, 2003, the Abigail Foster case. I mean, there's been kind of a complex shell game where Asian and white students and Jewish students, if you separate them from the white group, have looked at the test scores at these major universities. And there have been like scandals where like student reporters have leaked the average scores. Like it's hard to get these. I've been able to do it for like one paper ever, but every time the scores have leaked, people have noted, okay, look, the black score is two hundred. Now the now the gap's around two hundred points. Black test scores are not improving a little. But the black score is 200 points behind the white score. And and you're adding in all these other groups, like white women who say they're Native American and Hispanics who are now 18% of the population. What are you doing? Um, There's this massive praxis of discrimination going on. And the universities have said, no, no, the 200 point thing is a coincidence. It's just one of many factors. And the two groups have gone to court. And the Supreme Court just now in this fair admissions case against Harvard and the University of North Carolina Essentially, said that the entire set of claims from the major universities was a bullshit smokescreen. Like, they cited the scores very specifically. Uh, as I recall, a black applicant, if not admittee to Harvard, had the 1220 average SAT, whereas like an Asian admittee, and again, there were differences between applicants and admittees, but had a 765 times two, so a 1530. You know, and there's no way that this could be coincidental. I mean, if you look at the percentage chances of admission with those two different scores within the same race, you know, one is nine times more likely to receive admission than the other. So the the courts basically just threw out racial affirmative action. They said race can't be a significant factor, I believe, is the language, period. So that's where we are at the affirmative action right now. Um, My own take would be that the universities are going to cheat. They're going to implement some kind of class-based affirmative action that's not based on money, for example. Like they'll create risk or danger scores for neighborhoods. Or they will start looking at evidence of racism as versus just being black in application essays. But that that's where we are with affirmative action right now. It's existed for almost 60 years. It was just stopped in college. This, by the way, doesn't mean it's been stopped in the corporate world, prep schools, anywhere else
0: overall has affirmative action been a good thing for african americans over the 56 years in existence has it been a net negative or a net positive
1: um probably net positive or neutral if you're being did if you're being did honest and you look over that whole time frame i mean of course affirmative action helped like when you look at that first generation of blacks that were facing genuine discrimination and that had lower test scores but i mean you look at clarence thomas like a lot of them were coming from these small southern towns didn't have the same study opportunities Letting those guys who were genuinely, in many cases, brilliant. I'm sure Condoleezza Rice got a slight hand up. Thomas did. Thurgood Marshall maybe would have been at the very first. No, he wouldn't have been, actually. But, like, I do think that that, there was a logical reason to do this. To say, we're going to socially reward you if you get to 10% blacks. Which, remember, through Baki was the rule. You could do that. You know, there might be some test score gaps, but... It's very unlikely, the courts were saying, that we think you're going to do that at a lot of these colleges, the University of Mississippi, without some incentive. So there is an argument to be made at the very least that affirmative action was beneficial early on. I'll try to avoid rambling there. I think that you can also say, though, for the past 20, 25 years, as the country has equalized, as race relations have until recently gotten better, the program has made less and less sense. So I think ending it now was logical. And a big part of that is just that we're no longer a black and white country. Like we used to have two ethnic groups that made up 98% of the U.S. population. Maybe 1% Jews of all races, 1% Indians, Native Americans. Today, that's, that's simply not the case. So Hispanics are a much larger minority ethnic group than blacks. I sometimes feel like everyone from the IQ hereditarians over to the Hotep brothers forgets this. I mean, so when you look at like low-scoring minority students, a far larger percentage of those are going to be Hispanic than black. That's just a reality. Um, In a true miracle of, you know, miraculous population growth that has nothing to do with people just putting feathers in their hair and saying they're Cherokee, Native Americans have now grown to be something like 2-3% of the population. Um, Asians, who are more disadvantaged than advantaged by affirmative action, but still obviously minorities, are 7 or 8% of the population. So when you today say, well, we want to give minorities an edge over whites, you're saying something that's kind of nonsensical. Like, why would a Caucasian Hispanic from a Criollo family receive an advantage over the Appalachian son of a coal miner? It's very, very hard to piece that together in your mind and make that make sense if you're a fair-minded person. So more and more people have started lobbying questions like that at affirmative action. Why would you prefer the Criollo Hispanic guy certainly over the Asian son of a successful shopkeeper? So like this fair admissions case was brought primarily, if not entirely, by Asian plaintiffs. And their argument would be that, you know, whether you do it explicitly or not, limiting each group in a collegiate environment to its population percentage hurts East Indians or Koreans more than it does whites. Like, i.e., if you just allowed open competitive admissions to Harvard, you'd wind up with a Harvard that's probably—I'm pulling this number directly out of my ass—but 40% Asian, um, you know, probably another 15% Ashkenazi. I don't. East and South Asians might even be different populations there. A fair number of West Africans. So even if you don't have a lot of Hispanics there, you can't say that's not diverse. Why not just let everybody compete? So that—that that I think was a very powerful argument that it's absurd to advantage. A Chilean guy over a Vietnamese guy based on, like, large-scale, high-level group membership. That, that didn't make sense to anyone. And I, I agree with that.
0: Okay. I have two daughters. They're both in high school. One of okay. their friends posted something on social media toward the beginning of this month, right around when the Supreme Court decision came down. And it was an Asian friend of hers. She posted okay. on social media, oh, God, why can't we ever catch a break? And it was related to the affirmative action <laughs> ruling. And my daughter, very innocently, she's, you know, I, I try my best not to come across as a conspiracy theorist or anything, you yeah. know, that's, that's, um, you know, hateful or anything like that. In all seriousness, that's a very important topic. Um, sure. But she asked me to explain to her what that post meant. And I tried to put it into words as best I could, tried to say, well, actually, the Asians are disproportionately uh, disadvantaged by this. So this kid's obviously, uh, uh, you know, very confused. I know we don't have much time left in the episode, Professor Riley, but how would you address that? What was the ruling? Why would an Asian high schooler present it as they are uh, uh, sad at the ruling from the, the Supreme Court?
1: Well, what I would say about the ruling itself is, so what the court said is that you now can't discriminate against anyone in admissions based on race. Uh, And some black people think that's unfair because they faced so much discrimination in the past. But beyond that one group, uh, arguments against that don't make a lot of sense. That's how I'd present it, you know, conservative, but not fanatical and just also a factual description of what happened. Um. The Asian thing, I think, is an example of the kind of brainwashing that I'm rebelling against with my new book, Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me, available now on Amazon.com, a good book. But anyway, like, but I, I do think it's an example of how that conventional liberal perspective about almost everything, like even like sexual liberation. Like I've had younger mentees who are like college sophomores ask questions about like, what would you do if your girlfriend was into X hardcore variety of porn or wanted to be polyamorous? And my response is just like, I'd say that's kind of a problem. You know, depending on what it was like, it's but the the default is that that's perfectly normal. Everyone's got their own kinks and vices and differences, and you can never critique anyone. And this is another example of the same kind of stuff, I think, that conventional liberal perspective, like Asians are minorities and white racism hurts minorities. So something that's being called racist must hurt minorities. And the reality is that that's completely nonsensical. There are large majorities, uh, Asians, South Asians, West Africans. I'll say MENA because Arabs and Jewish Americans both do quite well. But there are large minority groups that outperform whites and there are large minority groups that underperform whites. And unless you're aware of that... Or when you're aware of that, the whole perspective of just like it's us POC versus the whites makes no sense. But most people are consciously kept from being aware of that in like a modern high school honors class environment. In fact, last comment on this this one question, but I will say like the level to which as like a mainstream liberal up middle class person, you're taught subtly to hate the West is pretty crazy. Like I've been watching some of the reviews for Oppenheimer and like almost everyone is saying, you know, great movie, but this white man designed a doomsday weapon that was dropped on innocent people of color. And it's like it was dropped on Imperial Japan because they were Nazis. Like their, their closest ally, they weren't, but their closest ally was a Hitler. I mean, so it's it's just this this weird, like black and white framing, like, why were we over there bothering people of color? Because they almost conquered the world. Like we had to stop them. You know, that, that's what we made out of bombs for, like the Nazis, like nothing else was ever that serious. So it's just if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that real frame of things are complicated, it's easier to fall back into an alternative quasi-religious frame. And that that's what people are doing when they say things like General Tojo was a good man.
0: Great answer, Professor Riley. I want to be considerate of your time before we wrap up the episode I want to say, actually, please keep fighting the good fight. I think uh, you you being existent within the educational system in our country and and other professors like you, uh, you the prevalence of you and maybe not even just you, but others who 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 challenge some of the um, accepted ways of teaching. I think it's very important. So thank you very much for doing that. If someone's interested in learning more about you, how can they follow you on social media? Of course, Professor Wilfred Riley, I mean, you're the only person with almost 100,000 followers on Twitter. So just type in Wilfred Riley. But other than that, how can they learn more about you?
1: I'm a really easy guy to follow online, actually. Like I'm like I said, I'm just now hitting the forty mark. I was in the nightlife business for a while in Chicago. So I'm very wired in. I mean, I have my old Facebook and all that. Like if you just Google Wilfred Riley, you'll find my website, albeit through my college, you'll find Twitter, where, yeah, I have 93,000 followers. You'll find FB, Wikipedia. I mean, pretty much all that that sort of content, YouTube. So if you are interested in hearing more of my opinions, just uh, look me up. I'm at that, I always say I'm at that level of kind of quasi-fame where I'll still like banter with you online and so on. I spend probably two hours a day across my social media platforms. So yeah, if people want to look me up, just search my name.
0: Great stuff, Professor Wilford Riley. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, bro. I want to thank everyone for tuning into The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon.